Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Another podcast. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm all right. I think it might be snowing outside. Mm, Not over here at the farm. We just have shivery looking cows at the moment. Poor cows. For our next podcast, uh, we're talking with an amazing human, but it needs a little background because things started percolating about three years ago, right? Yeah, it's been three years already. It's incredible. What happened three years ago? uh, We got news that the American Association of Museums, AAM, was putting on this pilot project called Facing Change. And the point of Facing Change was to bring people of color onto the governance boards of museums across the country. And this would be science museums, art museums, history museums, you name it. If it was a museum, they were targeting this project to you. And you had to apply to be part of the project. And we were selected from one of 50 across the country. There's about 12 of us in Minnesota that were selected. 50, and 50 total in the United States got this grant. Yes. That's, yes. So we're actually kind of cool. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Small museums like us usually don't get to work in national sized programs. And so this was a really interesting way to work with very large partners. Are you going to name but, names? Not nationally, but in Minnesota, we've been partnering with the Science Museum and the Bell Museum, uh, the Goldstein. There's so there's there's some big humans involved here. And then there's us. And I feel like I'm waving from the sidelines of Museum World. But we were able to work with LaVon Williams as a fellow. So there was a number of fellows that were hired by AAM to help out the boards in this process. I'm grateful you and LaVon could sit down and press the record button on one of your conversations together, reflecting on our time with him these past few years. Where did the conversation take you? LaVon talks a lot about how he came into the diversity, equity, inclusion world and what it was like working with us and the other museums. He's a brilliant person and he has a way of delivering bad news to you so that you like it. (laughs) We all have so much to learn and we all have the lenses that we look through and, and work from as best we can. I don't think anybody means to damage another person. That's never the intention, but we do. And working with LaVon has taught me especially how to recognize some of that in myself and then how to recognize it in others and how to accept criticism a little bit better. It's amazing to sort of hear the journey of how we started with Facing Change and um, how the museum is going to continue on after our three years thinking about these things more deliberately shall we uh take a take a listen we shall hit play okay i am with lavon williams right now for this episode of history 21 so how are you lavon 
I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Happy to be here. I'd love to know a little bit more about what brought you into the DEAI work to begin with, because at least when I was growing up, everyone wanted to be school teachers and firefighters and police people. And, and here you probably woke up in second grade and said, oh, I want to go change the world and make it an amazing place. Not at all. I wanted to be a mailman until I was well into my 20s. That's not a joke. The way that I think about this is like, so I, I was born in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is uh, a town in Northeast Indiana. I'm a Midwest kid, but I'm also a black Midwest kid. So growing up in a space where um, definitely uh, was not the majority in a lot of the spaces that I occupied, but all of the experiences that I had from from like middle school all the way through high school, it wasn't until like a class in college, an intercultural communication class, where I kind of found language to talk about the experiences that I had. And that was just such a, a watershed transformational moment for me to be like, oh, it's not just this thing that I feel, you know, there are like processes that are in place, really understanding like how people develop identity, things of that nature, but being able to find language that, that talked about the, that gave names to the experiences that I had uh, was really a big deal for me. My, my long and winding career road was not directly into DEAI even at that point. Um, as I've told you before, uh, I have a background in public libraries, I have a background in archives, and I have a, a deep, deep love for American popular music. And that's what in some ways landed me in, in the museum field. And uh, my first museum job was with the Stax Museum of American Soul Music in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, while I was in Nashville, I was part of a cohort called Racial Equity and Arts Leadership, or REAL. And that's really where I got re-sparked around the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion and things of that nature. The, the sort of path that I've been on since that experience is really what what got me into the DEAI space, the diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion space. And I was uh, fortunate to be able to work with the American Alliance of Museums with a flagship project that they were beginning um, right around 2019 called Facing Change. And that's how I, I got hooked up with you all at Anoka County Historical Society. I've always admired your patience. Um, I would love to know how you develop such a sense of patience, especially around the beginning level humans with the DEAI work, how you, you develop that patience in order to bring people along instead of making them feel chastised. That is a really good question. I don't have a, I don't have a really good answer for that. Uh, I think as a person, um, I've attempted to understand that people are where they are. Um, I've attempted to, to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, even when they don't deserve it, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I have a desire to work together with folks. When we think about how we feel about our history, about our, uh, what we understand our history, the stories of our family, these, things, these are things that are salient to who we see ourselves as. And for somebody to say, actually, it's completely different than what you thought. That is, that is a tough pill to swallow. And I recognize that. And I try to hold both, right? I try to 
um, to, to hold people um, accountable in a very compassionate way while also asserting the truth that is, right? Asserting what the experiences have been, asserting, asserting the history, right? And it's, it's, it's the balance of both. It is patience as you described, but it's also, it's also holding that this is not, this work is not, not meant to just save me. The idea is that we will be collectively liberated, right? If we can move away from white dominant culture, that doesn't just help me as a person of color, that also helps you as a white person. And I'm working to help you see that. That's the balance there. In terms of, of why I, how I developed that, I mean, it's been something over time. And I'm sure that it has to do with my experience of like having to exist as a black person in predominantly white spaces most of my life. I, I understand how to make white people comfortable. I understand, um, I understand how to code switch. I understand like all of these things. And like, you know, these are things that I shouldn't have to do. I should be able to show up authentically, but this is particularly in this work in the organizations that I work with, which are predominantly white institutions, being able to do that is really helpful. A lot of times in this work, it's so easy for people to shut down, like the defenses come up and they shut down. And so me leaning into finding ways, finding commonalities, ways to build trust so that when we get to the bumps in the road that are inevitably going to come, and I want to be really clear about that, there's no version of this work where it's neat and uh, there's no bumps and there's no, uh, no confrontation, there's no conflict. All of that is par for the course for this work. But my, the, my approach or part of my approach is building a space and a container of trust so that when we meet those inevitable bumps, we're ready for that. We're ready to grapple with it. Doesn't make it any easier, but there is some resiliency already baked in. So. Oh, I love that answer. One of the things that I saw in action was people run on assumptions so much and they don't even realize that they're running on the assumptions. So to state things explicitly and make sure that we're on the same page is something that I've learned over the last three years of working with you, that you can stop a lot of miscommunication and a lot of problems way before they even start just by making sure that we have those expectations laid out and a, a code of conduct, as it were, and a this is how this relationship is going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, they're called by a lot, of, a lot of different names. The term that I tend to use is group agreements, because for me, that levels the playing field, right? Like I may come in with a set of like ones that I tend to use in different groups, but I'm also very open to like, what does for for you or any other board member or anybody who is going to be in a space with me where we're, where we're about to do this sometimes difficult and challenging work what do you need to be able to to show up to be here to feel um you know a safe space is really almost a cliche at this point and so i, I want to be clear about this i typically talk about it as a brave space like for you to push yourself for you to be comfortable with things that may be uncomfortable, helping set the stage, helping create a container for that work to happen in, that I have found that that's really helpful. This is not Levon putting on to a group, this is what we're going to do. It's we as a group saying like, 
hey, understanding that this is gonna be uh, work that is very different from the work that we do elsewhere, you know, in particular as a board, what are the things that we need to be able to do that and stay in community with each other? So I'm extremely curious to ask, um, I'd love to think that ACHS was special and that we got the A plus mark on the report card for working through facing change with you. And I know that we didn't. So I would love to know how we are the same as the other organizations that you worked with, you know, for better or worse, but how did we do the same blasted things as everybody else that was by the book? Um, but what I think is really cool to talk about in regards to ACHS in terms of the work we did is the work that you did do that other people can think about, right? The first thing that I did with the clients that I worked with, uh, the clients I work with in the Twin Cities um, was to really try and build a subset of the board that would eventually be um, champions for this work with the full board. And Anoka County Historical Society immediately leaned into that by setting up a task force um, that we were able to spend a little bit more time with and go a little bit more deeper with. I thought that, that was great. And that was something that you all did. Another thing that happened relatively early on in the arc of our time together was grappling with the organizational values, right? We were able to say, or I shouldn't say we, you all were able to say, you know, here, is, here, here are our espoused values. Here's our mission statement. Um, does that still ring true for us today and who we wanna be going into the future? And that process, talking about values, talking about the mission statement sparked so much conversation Right. And like, you know, that was over a, a relatively extended period of time. Right. Coming back to it, thinking about it. Oh, well, I thought we meant this or th what does this actually mean? What is it that we want to say? Does this align again with where we want to be going in terms of the stories that we tell at the Noka County Historical Society? That piece watching you all work through that. That was um, that was wonderful because I think and I think that it laid the groundwork for all of the work that has come after that. And again, it doesn't mean that it was perfect or non-bumpy, but it was something and it was a pretty big win very early, relatively early on in, in this process. And it was that kind of work that has still is still ongoing right now. Like we're still working on certain things, but I think that those early steps, the creating of the task force, the really getting a, a shared understanding of what the values were, and that, that manifested in shifting uh, your vision statement and mission statement, those things were like I, the things that I think have been the most critical to my observation of your journey uh, in facing change. Does that answer your question? He's going to keep the negative secrets to himself, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, well, I mean, I can also talk about some of the pitfalls. I mean, and this is less about... Um, less about Anoka County and more and, and more broadly about what I see in the field. Um, I think that people come into this work, they come to, they particularly, you know, in a post George Floyd murder world, people come to this work thinking that it's going to be something that it's not. And I think really, you know, I worked with six organizations that are in roughly in the Twin Cities area and, you know, every one of those organizations dealt with the aftermath of that happening very close to where they live very differently. 
Um, and people, I think that there were people who prior to that came into this being like, I'm a good person and I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna say the right things. And like, it got really real with you all, all of these organizations, all, all the organizations I was working with, with that happening. And I think that that shifted a lot of people. Um, and I think a pitfall that tends to happen, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little wordy here. A pitfall that tends to happen on the front end is that people think, oh, this is just gonna be this thing that we kind of have to do. It's a compliance thing. And we'll, you know, it's like any other maybe uh, human resources related kind of a thing. But when you get into it, you realize like, no, this organization has to do dif things differently. I have to do di things differently. And that's a much different um, commitment. That's a much different commitment to make, to say, I'm willing to help this organization change and I'm willing to do deep work, deep personal work where I explore myself and the things that I've been taught and the way that I've been socialized to view the world. That's a different thing, man. You know, a lot of um, a, a, a refrain that I've been hearing across the field uh, in conversations uh, behind closed doors like this is like, well, we're a historical society. We're a science museum. You know, all of the permutations of the roles that um, these kind of that museums play in communities, not a social justice organization where I have been trying to influence, where this entire initiative has been trying to influence it, is that that binary that says that we're a museum and we're not this, that binary is a false binary, right? You Museums play a critical role in their communities. They reflect society. They reflect historical understandings and how that has shifted over the years. I mean, that is, that's not a new concept, but it's interesting that sometimes it feels like it's a new concept or a conf concept that we have to relearn again. And we're right in the thick of that relearning now. Um, for museums to remain relevant, museums have to understand that the stories being told from the same people who have been told over the past hundred, you know, hundreds of years, um, the, the, told in the same way, thinking about the same things, that's going to have to shift, right? We're gonna to have to start bringing more voices, bringing in, uh, bringing in more perspectives. That, that's the shift that we have to make, right? Um, I think people think uh, we're gonna do a quick six month kind of thing and everything will be fixed. And that's just not the nature of this work. This work is ongoing. A lot of everything about the museum field is a very linear kind of uh, practice, you know, one foot in front of the, the other and like you keep moving forward. But in this work, it's much more messy where you may, <clears throat> instead of just going directly forward, you try something and you experience that, you realize that actually we didn't even set that up straight uh, correctly from the beginning. So we have to go back to step one rethink about it with what we learned and then try that exact same step again with that additional knowledge and try it again, you know, and, and that's like the entire process. You're never going to get it 100% right. It's always going to be a work in progress. It's ongoing. I think it's really interesting that you bring in that personality side of it because, you know, archivists are, as you know, um, they're very linear people. You have a mess and you want to organize the mess and everything goes into neat and orderly folders with neat and orderly numbers, and it goes into a database, and then you can find things. So I wonder if part of 
the museum world reticence in the DEA I work to begin with is just the, the conglomerate of personalities that are drawn to the order of museum work, which is not messy. I think you're, I think that's spot on. I think that's a spot on observation. And I think, you know, some of the statistics that came out of, um, you know, came, that, that facing change came out of speak to the fact that the field is overwhelmingly white, uh, it, you know, uh, at all leadership levels. Um, I think that there are, there has not been a lot of, um, a lot of room for different ways of thinking, different ways of doing. Where I'm getting at, what I'm getting at with this is that I agree with you. I think that there are elements of the museum field that um, that attract people who are attracted to very linear, linear, orderly ways of working and ways of knowing and ways of being. And I am saying that we are a stronger field when we are open and and welcoming and allowing some of that messiness to get in or a different way of thinking, other ways of knowing um, into the space. I think that we are better for that. Facing Change was created specifically to put people of color onto boards and governance structures within the museums that were participating. Whereas we keep saying DEAI work. So that is a larger umbrella than perhaps what Facing Change itself was working on. But I think that we especially have taken what we've learned through the Facing Change program and applied it in other areas of the museum, whether it's um, thinking about Spanish language tours or whether it's you know how we can do an audio tour of the physical exhibit so that visually impaired people can enjoy it, um, that there are so many other elements to DEAI work I think back to the first time that you and I met and you remember that? I absolutely remember that. It was um, the first uh, sort of the, the kickoff event of, um, of the Facing Change Initiative within the Twin Cities. A cohort of 12 different museums were brought into um, a space to be together to, uh, it, and it was some structured learning, but also an opportunity for institutions to network with each other board to board. Um, and it was great. And I remember we were doing a, like uh, in the first half of the day, I came and I met the board from Anoka County Historical Society, talked a little bit about it. And then we were later on in the afternoon, we were working on a project. And I remember uh, you had a neck brace on at that time. And I was like, you know, my immediate thought was like, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, what has happened between the last time I saw you and like, you know, this time I saw you, which was only like maybe an hour or so. And I was immediately went into like panic mode about like, are you okay? And everything all right, you know? And you were, you know, so Rebecca about it. Like, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm all right, thanks. Um, just trying to do our thing over here. So, but, you know, in conversation um, with you and I, I think sometime probably in the past, like couple of months, you know, I brought that, somehow that conversation came back up and, since then, I've learned about your uh, your physical disability, and so that offered us an opportunity to kind of revisit our first conversation and for me to learn from you, and I have learned from you in other ways over the time we've been uh, working together as well, but that was a, 
that was a really poignant one for me to really um, to think about my, myself and my experience of, with people with disabilities and what that means and how I show up in those spaces. I think it was a cool moment for me because I am always struggling with how I react to people who aren't rural white folks. And I'm always thinking about how to interact with people and to be the last three to, well, probably five years now on the, the dis disability list and to watch people struggle with how to interact with me. It was the first time that I'd really felt that side of it. And I think coupling that experience of mine with the facing change work. And I think that has really opened up the experience for me personally. And, and so it's meant a lot more than I was anticipating that it would. I'm glad. And I'm, I'm you know, I think that what AAM is thinking about with the Face and Change Initiative in centering, uh, centering race is it's always not just race. The reason that we center race is that studies show that if we don't, race doesn't come up, it, it's easily pushed off the table because it's something that as a society, we're not used to grappling with in a very real way. But our approach has always been, while that race is centered, it is always race and, it's race and uh, disability, race and LGBT issues, race and gender issues. It's not, it's not to say that one is more important than the other, but it is saying that by centering this one, we have a path to each and all of them. And I wanted to also tell you about my gratitude for you being open, as open as you are and sharing your experience with me. That has been super meaningful for me. In my, in my growth. And I, it's not your job to educate me on disability issues, but I have been grateful for how, how open, patient, honest, authentic you have been in our relationship. So thank you for that. Oh, it's been my pleasure to be working with you. I think getting people to put their egos on the shelf to, to approach someone that you believe that you think that you might have misstepped and then to approach that other person and say, this is how I think I might have done something a little bit off. Did you see it that same way? And if you did, how can I fix it and help me be a better person moving forward? That takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of internal reflection. Right. And I think, you know, inherent in, in all of what you said is that we don't like to be wrong. I'll speak for myself, let me stop saying we. Um, I carry a lot of um, socialization around perfectionism and like to have been wrong and to possibly have offended you or anyone else for that matter about anything. It's like, oh man, I don't, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna ask them if something landed wrong because what if they say it did and then I feel bad, like, you know what I mean? A lot of times early on with clients, I'll say, you know, I have expertise in this, in this field I am not an expert. I make mistakes every day. I still, there are still areas of my work that I struggle with and I'm, I'm positioned because of our relationship as the expert, but that doesn't mean I'm perfect. Um, again, to your point, 
we don't often give ourselves the space to, to reflect and the space to be wrong and to, to have done something, to have harmed someone and, and, and to do the work to, to get back and right relationship. All of it has impact and building the, the muscle to be able to reflect and to be vulnerable and say, I think I may have done something wrong, did I? And whatever the feedback that I get, whether it's feedback that's like, kind and says, you know, yeah, you did, but let's work this out. Or if it's like, F you, and I don't ever want to talk to you again, being able to, to sit with that. And, you know, my, my hope is always that, that whichever way that that comes, I show up in a way that helps the other person understand that I want to be in right relationship with them. And I'm, I'm willing to do the work that if I have caused harm, I'm willing to do the repair work to to fix that harm. And I don't get to choose what that repair looks like. They have to choose that. And they can choose that I'm not interested in your repair, sir. And I have to, I have to sit with that and move on as well. You know, all, you know, you never know what's going to happen with that, but I have to be living my value of being invested in, in my relationships in that way. Consolidate that down into a bumper sticker somehow. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Um, I, you know, I'm way too verbose to, for bumper stickers. I need to to think about bumper sticker stuff because I feel like I have too, way too many words to say most of the time. No, I am. I am so sad that our three years together with Facing Change is wrapping up and coming to an end because it's conversations like these that honestly I don't get to have with many people. And I'm really going to miss this interaction and how you move through our board and what you've brought to the historical society. So truly, I am, I'm going to miss that. So moving on, air quotes without you, because I got to figure out a way to keep you around. This is what work do you see us in the next three years? What work do you see needing to still happen at ACHS? Great question. I think that the, the big thing to do is to not lose that momentum, to not, you know, you all have changed over the course of this project and you all have been energized, capture that energy and keep and keep going. Um, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing I think. I, a, a second thing I would add is, as I was saying before, think about the resources that you all need to allocate to really center this work and what you do. Understanding that your, that Anoka County Historical Society's ability to grapple and shift uh, uh, along this, these lines are directly connected to you all's resiliency and relevance to the community that you serve. It's not just a, a nice thing to have, a nice thing to do in a very brass tacks kind of way. If if this work isn't centered, it will it could it could eventually cause um, cause the the historical society to be irrelevant, right? You all want to stay connected, stay, want to stay telling the stories that are important to the history, keeping keeping the, those stories alive, and to do that, you have to center this work and begin to shift and bring continue to bring more people into the space, more experiences into the space, more stories that you can tell from different perspectives. That's all related. And as part of that, I would also add, you know, a thing that the, that you all can continue to do 
And I see this already happening and it's probably one of the most exciting parts of this entire project for me is really understanding another thing about museums is that historically we've had a very sort of one way uh, thinking in terms of how we work with the communities. We are the expert and we benevolently give uh, our knowledge, share our knowledge with our community. And where I see the shift beginning to happen with Noka County Historical Society is that as a paradigm shift to like, actually this is a two-way street. What is it that we can learn from the community itself? What can they teach us? Um, not just what can we teach them, understanding that it is an exchange and that there is expertise that is not necessarily museum expertise, but is also important in, in, in helping us to grow, evolve, change, shift, uh, to remain relevant. The people that make up the community from different backgrounds, how are we engaging with them in a way that says that we value what you all bring to the table, that we are benefiting from having you in our space, not that you're benefiting from being, on, being able to say you're on our board. Does that make sense? I love it. Levon, thank you so much for your time and your brain and your energy and all of the expertise that you have brought to us over the last three years. It really has been just such a gift. Yeah, it's been, it's been great working with you all. And uh, it's been really great getting to know you all as people, as individuals. And, uh, you know, I'm always I'm inspired by uh, the board's real um, connection and desire and zest for the history of Anoka County, right? And I'll be completely honest with you, you know, three years ago, I didn't know Anoka County existed, right? But I feel like I feel like I, I could be at home in Anoka County now. So that's, you know, that that says a lot about you all and how you all show up in the space and the passion with which, you, you know, you have for the history of the county. So. All right. Thanks so much, Levon. So what do you think of all of that, Sarah? It was really fun to edit this episode together uh, and frustrating because I didn't know where I could cut out the story because all of it was so important to understanding bigger pictures and understanding um, where we're going. There's, there's no easy path forward when you're trying to think through all of these things in thoughtful ways. There are so many ideas of where we can go as a museum to just be better for the future, to tell the story of Anoka County in all of its shades and variations and peoples and communities. It's so exciting to work here. Well, I'm personally glad to hear you say that it's wonderful to work here. <laughs> don't, don't leave me, Sarah. I know personally, I am very excited to try to offer our ghost tours because we're coming out of ghost tour season, offer our ghost tours in different languages or our digital tour in different languages. So that's, I think, a goal for next ghost tour season. There's a lot of ways that we can incorporate more into the museum and what we do and it's wonderful to be able to work with you and Aaron as staff and do some brainstorming on this and really include you in the process. Now, this has been such a board level project for the last three years. 
that I'm really excited to watch it spread through the rest of the museum now. Doing things for the museum that aren't just lip service, that are concrete and not just performative. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're we're going a little bit slowly on some of these things because we want it to be deliberate and focused. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness as well. You're a, a good egg to be working with. So oh. put that on your evaluation. <laughs> now I got to go figure out what we're going to be listening to for episode number 25, the penultimate episode of the year. So stay tuned. You'll find out when I find out. <laughs> Happy rummaging. See you next time. Bye, guys. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.